Do you want to do you want to do the intro today? Oh god, don't. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Now, where we talk about game development in Rust, even though we haven't really done a lot of game development together in Rust yet. And we're also talking about our side projects, which we have done quite a lot of, right? So I'm going to start. I'm going to start because I don't think I have that much to say this week. So I'm going to start by asking you, what exciting adventures have you been up to this week? I don't know if there's been a lot of super exciting adventures. Um, I'm really excited for the Rust uh, version 1.70 to drop. Um literally any minute i don't know what time of day i have a uh, an update to a crate ready to, to to publish as soon as it does that updates the msrv to 170 for one of the new features so that was one of the small adventures that i went on this what, week what was, new feature is that uh well i was going to talk about it later but it's a stabilization of once cell which uh the sync version is going to be called once lock yes um, and so it's uh it improves one of the apis for one of my crates that i have that purposely has no dependencies so i avoided once sell before um so i was using a kind of a hacky uh interior mutability through a through a mutex rw lock thingy i don't remember exactly what i used before um uh, so this makes the api much better because with uh with the once sell api you can uh you can get the inner value without having kind of a wrapper like you have to have with uh like ref cell and stuff like that um so it just makes is a much cleaner the end api of static then right, is uh, the well, end of lazy static now I mean, to some extent, I would say that lazy static, the end of it was once sell. But, um, but yeah, I feel like now that this getting moved into stood, um, that the, the argument for keeping either of those around will get smaller. Um, now that being said, this isn't a full stabilization of the once sell crate into stood. It's a limited API that's being stabilized, but it's enough that like, I don't, I honestly don't know what's missing <laughs> because the, the feature, features <laughs> I cared about were all there. So. So, uh, so that was great. Um, but I also, uh, part of what I was working on last week was talking about uh, my adventures and trying to figure out how I want to style my graphical user interface um, apps that I've been building a framework for called GUI. Um, and I've been working a lot on that. I haven't published anything with it. Um, I released a uh, separate crate that is a, a premature optimization thing from last week as well, uh, where uh, I <laughs> had a, a thought process of... Uh, would it be faster if I uh, know that I have a fewer number of uh, things in my map type to use something custom as opposed to B-tree map or hash map? And the short answer is yes, for many reasons, but I'm not sure that it's worth trying to dig into right here. So I'll just link to the crate that I released. The readme describes uh, you know, where it's beneficial and where you're probably better off using the standard library types. Um, so, And then as part of that, I uh, discovered um, that there was uh, some missing trade implementations in STUD that I was a little surprised I by. I saw that. Um, yeah. So I, I actually put in my first API change proposal to the Rust project. Um, so we'll see if that goes anywhere. Um, it's just adding partial ORD support to STIR and string, and likewise VEC of T and, uh, and uh, slice of T. Um, uh, they already implement partially Q with each other, so this feels like it's just a little bit of an oversight. And and I found someone else who kind of noticed that a couple years ago as well, but I haven't noticed any actual traffic on trying to implement it. But I'm new to trying to develop. This is this will be the first time I've ever contributed to the Rust, you know, language in any way. Um, and so uh, I'm kind of excited to see how it goes. So what have you been working on this past week? Oh well, I have been doing a whole lot of very very intense procrastination. I have not managed to move forward and I keep I keep banging my head against the, the metaphorical brick wall trying to implement this and this this shouldn't be a difficult issue, right? I'm trying to implement this um this iterator that can move in both directions. You can you can move forward and you can move backwards. And this and I'm and I'm doing this with a very kind of mechanical uh, with a me mechanical approach where we're just incrementing an index and then decrementing an index. But since this thing also has a nested uh, structure, which in itself can be nested, and you can sort of see how this kind of recursive thing unfolds, and then moving backwards and forwards through the recursion turned out to be a little bit complicated. And the complication does not come from the problem being difficult. The complication I am finding is in the 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 implementation, right? So, so so I I, I implement this thing, and and it feels like I am. 
I have not designed this well enough, right? So this is this is entirely blocked on my frustration with my own design of the code. And it, like at, at some point, we kind of just have to, you know, make something and then move on. But in this case, I am just stuck. I can't do it. And and I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, right? You you um you shared something with me, right? I I, I brain dumped a little bit in the in actually in the wrong channel, but that's fine. I, <laughs> I I didn't mean for us to implement this thing. But then you linked to something, and I when I looked at your code, and I'm, I'm gonna give you a compliment here, because your code is absolutely fantastic. It was so good to read uh, that I felt ashamed of my own code. So now I'm feeling bad for not solving my issue, and then I'm feeling worse because my code is just it's just it looks like a hot mess, right? You're putting me to shame here. <laughs> um, so, so basically, that's what I've been working on, right? And 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 I'm doing, and I'm and I've done. I've been a little bit bad with this as well. Well, let me let me ask you. Let me ask you a little quick question here about code quality. Do you use Clippy, and if so, at what level of lens do you enable? Are uh, you putting me on the spot here? Because if I say no, then I'm going to get attacked by the Rust community. If I say yes, then I'm a liar. So I don't really know what to say here. Uh, <laughs> but in all in all honesty, I do use Clippy, but not when I'm prototyping, right? So this yeah. is I'm this is this, so I'm I'm personally a little bit allergic to unwrap and expect. Right? There's very few reasons for these things to exist in my production code. I say my yep. production code because I don't know what other people are building, right? Um, but in, in, in my case, so, but when I'm prototyping, I am unwrapping left, right, and center, and I'm doing yep. all these things. Um, and, and I think it's like, it's just, I'm just trying, I'm trying to get this kind of this raw finished thing that I can then, you know, make into something that is, you know, maintainable, right? Um, now, I'm I'm not a fan of of um, or like the, this the, of clean code, right? I don't I don't believe uh, in 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 that really, right? Um, but like whatever you would call clean code, but there is something that is order to the chaos, right? And I do believe in order in my code, right? I do believe that it should make sense, right? Not just say I don't care about clean code and then we put everything in the main function, right? That's, that is not <laughs> that is not my take <laughs> on it, right? But um, I'm very much like um, you know I don't know you know if you if you look at the um, you know the whole world where we where there are certain pieces of literature that would suggest that you should hide something like a match statement somewhere deep into your system and an abstraction right and i and i and I, I don't agree with that right but um but yeah i do think i do think that code has kind of an aesthetic to it and you should you should have an organized like an organized aesthetic to it right you can you can follow the code and it makes sense it is an art to be able to name your variables yeah. and, and these kind of thing, right? Yeah. So uh, for you know, I credit a lot of my code readability to, to Clippy. That's why I brought it up. Um, so by the time that I'm ready to publish something, um, it is absolutely using Clippy Pedantic, which is uh, it enables a lot more checks than the default Clippy runs are, um, and uh, it does it it. it it forces you into a bit more of an idiomatic style for certain things. Um, and, and I'm not off the top of my head, not going to remember them all. What ones are pedantic versus uh, normal. Um, but I, I think that um, tools like Clippy and Rust format go a long way to making code bases in Rust just much more approachable. There are still a lot of other things that we could get into, um, but I wanted to get back to, to, to what you were working on. So um what what aspects of the implementation of your iterator have been challenging? Has it been like are you are you when you say iterator are you uh, implementing iterator with the standard library or is it an iterator like pattern with a custom type that does all these crazy things? Yes, it would be a custom type. So so to make this thing a little bit. Uh, simplistic, right? So what I'm doing is I'm evaluating expressions and some of these expressions can be for loops. And when we have a for loop, we create an inner scope. So for every for loop, we're going to have a value with a specific name because that's what we're iterating over in the for loop. And this value has to be available inside the scope, but not outside of the scope, right? Now, Previously, I sold this thanks to um, uh, a user. I don't know. Do, should we should we name people? Should we name people? Sure. I, I've been trying to remember to use their actual, you know, GitHub handles or Discord handles, depending on what we're more familiar with, um, versus their first names. Because I know a lot of people's first names, <laughs> but they're not always public right, with so, it. So, so, yeah, so, yeah. Well, well, we'll I, I, I don't know this person's full name and address, and I don't think I will mention. It. No, but jokes aside, right? Um, so this was Chillfish on on your. Disco, right? So oh, yeah. this was this was one of those this was one of those moments where I'm hanging out in a chat and someone I haven't talked to before 
turns up and and listen to my tearful explanation about my problem and then just say, why don't you just use a stack? And, and not only that, but also provided an implementation in Python that was so simplistic to follow that I just I just solved the problem. Well, I didn't solve it. This person solved the problem for me instantly, right? Um, so I was doing this with a stack and that worked up until the point where I realized that I have to be able to go backwards and forwards, right? Um, and, and in doing so, I came up with this thing of like having these nested scopes and just moving an integer, right? A U size pointing into, into a, a collection of sorts, right? And, and just going backwards and forwards, right? And the challenging part here is to come up with an, a structure to, to the code that does not modify the index in multiple arbitrary locations. So you can kind of track this thing, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so this is so this has been the struggle that I'm, I'm sort of like I'm, I'm I'm solving this thing and I'm coming up with this sort of you know this um uh what was it called the uh, the uh, not linear thinking this kind of this this sort of um, oh good grief uh, words uh, what's it called when you have you just put one thing a little bit like how a child tells a story when you kind of just go and then and then and then that kind of way of building code, right? So you, um, if you're an inexperienced developer, it's very easy to just keep adding code instead of going back and say, okay, these 10 lines of code can now be replaced by one line of, of, of code, right? So so it's, it's been a little bit like this. I just keep adding on top of this thing and I end up with enums to control state and directions and, and all this stuff. So I'm trying to basically program into a situation where it's working and I can get this overview where I can see the core moving parts and how they fit together and how they should fit together. But I am not getting there with this. And this, I, I, I imagine a lot of you listening to this thing, you probably think this is a very easy problem and it probably is. Feel free <laughs> to send me your solution. So are you iterating with mutable access or is it read-only access? Uh, so the the items or the elements that I'm iterating over are immutable, but the iterator itself is obviously mutable since sure, we sure. can modify the index. Yeah, but, yeah. But yeah, so, no, we don't. We do not need mutable because the expressions have already um, been evaluated, and and it only evaluates in in one level, right? So if we have a for loop within a for loop within a for loop, uh, we're only we're doing this in a lazy way. So we're just going to pull out the first iteration until we get to a value, and then we stop there. So we don't really evaluate the entire for loop, but rather we pull an element at a time out of the for loop to get this evaluated expression. This way, we we have uh, well lazy evaluation, right? It's a lot cheaper mm-hmm. than 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 building up a widget tree that's never going to appear on screen. So the the core idea is that we build widgets until we can't display them anymore, and then we just stop, right? Mm-hmm. So. One idea I wanted to throw out, and you may have already explored this on stream. Your streams are at hours that I very rarely get to catch very much of them. And when I do, they're usually at the point that you're falling apart mentally at the end of your day. So, uh, so I, I don't know if uh, this is so true. I, I don't actually know if, uh, if you've tried this or not, or have explored this idea. Um, but one of the really cool things that I love about Rust is that cloning iterators often can be almost free. And what I mean is that if you're iterating over a slot, um, you can actually clone those iterators, almost all of them, um, because ultimately it's just a pointer to a reference to the slice and you know some state information about where it's at inside of the slice, right? And so I'm curious whether or not um, as a way to allow backing up and um, you know kind of resetting state, whether, whether it makes sense to just allow people to clone your iterators um, when they're about to go dig into something. And then if they decide that that's actually the, not the right path or whatever, you know, they need to revert, they can just go and pick up the old, old clone of the iterator again. Have you investigated trying that approach at all? This, this is a, a- I think that's a very good approach, and that is how I'm going to solve when when we start moving backwards, and then we want to go back to where we were. So we iterate backwards, maybe ten elements. We don't want to iterate forward ten elements just to get back to where we started. So the idea is at that point we just take a snapshot of the iterator since we everything is borrowed and everything mm-hmm. is already present. Right? So we take a snapshot, and then we can iterate backwards. Right. Um, so, so that is definitely how I wanted to solve the uh, the problem of of getting back to where we were. Right? Um, I I don't think anyone's actually going to use this other than me. And I'm building this 
with the intent of being able to have negative offsets, right? So the whole thing comes back to this viewport widget that I think is going to be one of the most dominant widgets because this will allow you to build um, chats or logs or whatever you want where you just want to keep pushing information into this thing and um, you you just want to render, but you want to be able to scroll up and down. So you kind of you build your offset by saying which item do you want to look at and then an offset from there. This also gives you the possibility to quote-unquote bookmark where you are in a collection as well, right? And because we can do this, we can then get rid of a lot of items that doesn't have to appear. We, don't, we can skip like large chunks, right? And this comes down to the whole, how can we how can we have 30 million items in a list that we give to a viewport and show that on screen, right? How can we do that without punishing the, the user for using a large collection when it should be, um, I mean, it, it's rust, right? It's all about, you know, to pay, pay, pay only for what you use kind of thing, right? The, the mentality, at least, right, is what I'm trying to have. Yeah. Um, around this thing, right? Um, may, I don't know. I mean, you probably have a, a, a very different take on this thing. I'd imagine well, you probably would, would approach this. I would be, but but not. Your goals aren't wrong. Um, so it's not. You know, the, these are like different um, different. You know, usability. Um, uh, patterns, I guess. Um, you know, large lists are often delegated uh, through some sort of uh, you know interface, or in Rust, it would be some sort of trait, probably um, that you know says you know, okay, g- get me X number of rows starting at offset, whatever, right? Um, and that way, you don't necessarily have to have the whole data set in memory, um, which moves the problem of. Um, uh, figuring out what all elements are there into the data source, right? Which means it could be, you know, loading those things remotely over a database. It could even have like async callbacks to, you know, let it show up empty and then populate later. Like there's a lot of cool stuff you could potentially do with that type of system. Um, but at the end of the day, that is harder for a developer to implement usually compared to just giving a list of things to, to your table to display. Um, I remember programming in, uh, I think it was Coco for Mac OS 10 in the early days um, where I feel like their NS table view forced you into this delegate uh, or data source type approach. Um, and it just felt punishing when I had a static list of things that I wanted to display and I had to build a data source for it or whatever. Um, and so I, I, uh, you know, I agree that just not having to worry about the performance and be able to throw thousands and thousands of things, uh, at something without it slowing down is wonderful. Um, and I would hope for something similar performance wise out of GUI as well, eventually, um, if I continue pursuing it that far. Um, but at the end of the day, um, I think that the 30 million, objects it's probably a little much because ram is a consideration right so um at some point uh i think that it's better for developers to do the you know lazy loading style approach uh because you just want to be conscientious of how much ram you're your program's using. Um, but I would say that 99.999% of apps almost never have that amount of data in them that you have to worry about that. So <laughs> your approach, practically speaking, uh, is fine for almost every use case. I, d- I do believe that, yes, this is only, this is only covering uh, a very, very small percentage where someone may or may not have accidentally pointed a large collection. You, you mentioned NS table view. Did we have something called NS list view as well back in, 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 in there? I, uh, this sounds I kind of yeah. think so, but yeah, I don't remember exactly. Uh, they did have a couple of, or maybe there was an NS outline view, to, uh, maybe, I don't know. Uh, this, this is going to be entertaining for all the non-Mac programmers out there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, it's, uh, they, they both had similar things, if I remember correctly. Um, and they did eventually make it easier. Um, but uh, in the early days, I just remember it being kind of painful. Um, who knows if I'm if I'm off on a tangent there? Uh, I, I I haven't programmed this uh, anything with that since I think 20, 20, 2009 or twenty eleven. I think was the last time I wrote anything on um, using Xcode and, and iOS um, uh, doing iOS development, right? And I think if I remember correctly, which might very well not be the case, right? That you also had to have a fixed um, height on your element inside the list. So you you kind of there were some uh, third party uh, components I think that had this variable height 
for the items I, in the list. But I, I think thought they have that to have there was the a way for you to return a measurement. But if you did, uh, you paid a big performance penalty because that meant that it had to actually look at all the rows, right? Um, yes, and that's what I want to avoid. So in my case, we're we're basing this off the the items we're iterating over so we can calculate the size but we we this comes at the cost of knowing the offset but we, well, the idea is obviously to add um, nice interfaces for dealing with the offset so you don't really have to compute the offset you have to you can assign an offset but then you kind of just go from there um, at risk of getting in the weeds are you uh when when something wraps like as multiple lines um in this uh viewport uh widget of yours um when you scroll, are you scrolling by line number? Or are you scrolling by element number? You see, that is this is this is where the trickiness lives, right? We're scrolling by line yeah, number. Okay. If we're scrolling vertically, this also supports horizontal scrolling, right? So because of that, that means that we can't just have a data adapter saying, "Okay, give me ten elements starting from an offset of the one millionth element," right? Instead, because we have to be able to render maybe the top part of the, uh, mm -hmm. the, the element that comes before the first element we're going to render, right? So we kind of just have to be able to go back. Um, and this all, this kind of, the idea and everything, it works as far as I've seen, right? It's just the implementation is, is, is well, for lack of a better word, rather terrible right <laughs> now. Um, but once I can, if I can sort of solve this thing, then you'll be able to navigate with negative offsets and it can just pull... And, and, and even though we're mixing uh, four loops with uh, with just single elements, so you can basically uh, mix and match whatever you want in there, and it would just render the whole thing correctly, right? Which is why I'm very excited about the prospect of being able to do this. Because Absolutely. Because there, there are so many things I want to build. But, but yes, anyway, so that is my week. And, and, and in, in working on this thing, um, I'm sort of stuck on this. So I, I look at the, the questions that my viewers have and I invest way too much time in these questions. The, the other day, I had a viewer asking me about um, network programming, right? Um, like how do you how do you build like a multi-room chat? And over the course of three hours on stream, instead of focusing on what I should be doing, I spend three hours implementing a sync version using or using threads, and then we spend another half hour uh, rewriting this thing to use Tokyo and async. And uh, and I was kind of explaining all of this as I was going through it, and it was really fun. But I am painfully aware that I am not doing what I'm supposed to be doing, right? Um, and and today was very very similar to that. I start the stream with the intention of like, okay, we're gonna work on this thing. I even apologize to my viewers and say, listen, I'm going to be um, incredibly boring right now and try to solve this thing. And then someone comes in with with a question, uh, be it something from rustlings and how to operate options work and and I kind of just dive into a whole conversation about that instead of doing what I'm supposed to be doing right because other people's problems are a lot easier to deal with than your own this is not just programming well right? I think it's also just like so. the, the bite-sized nature of some of it too you know like a lot of these little what I would call side projects even though they're kind of related to an overall grandiose vision that I have like I can I can say how they all why why they've all been started uh, and they all kind of are inspired by the same thing right but at the end of the day I've got a ton of crates that I support um, one of our uh, one of our friends <laughs> and listeners uh, mod prog uh, jokingly asked a couple weeks ago and we didn't we didn't bring it up on the show but this seems like a good uh, a good uh, uh, opportunity to put it in he, he said how much time did you waste due to me using your libraries uh, and uh, <laughs> you know you know what? You know what? Modprog is the very person who suggested the solution to be able to deal with large collections. I say he's guilty. And he's for guilty my... for kicking me off on GUI again, too, because he's the one that uh, jokingly, well, I don't know how jokingly, suggested that you should use uh, Leptos's reactive system in your TUI library, um, which served as a inspiration of like, you know, I, I, I actually really like uh, Modprog's opinions a lot. And so when he's like like something so I. i'm curious about it and that's actually what inspired me to kick off this gooey reboot entirely so he's responsible for uh, and then on top of that uh he and i developed a uh, ron format alternative which is just uh it stands for rusty object notation uh ours is uh called uh rsn instead um uh i forget what it's 
think it's rusty notation i think is what that's supposed to stand for um and it's just a slight variation in the format but it all started by us hanging out we were both working on separate projects and he's like you know i i just don't like this about ron and we started like looking at it a little more he actually was even doing some prs for ron um to improve some of the stuff that he he discovered uh that he wasn't quite as happy with um so some of those things are improved which is great but at the end of the day we looked at it and we're like you know it'd be cool if we had a format that was even more rusty than Ron was. <laughs> and so <laughs> we started developing a new format and that was one of the, you know, if, if long time listeners, I mean, if you can consider yourself a long time listener of a month old podcast, um, long time listeners may remember me saying that there was a side project that I don't even want to get into that I was working on too. That was that one. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Maybe, maybe, maybe this is part of some grand evil scheme, right? Cause he kind of just goes, you know what, if you just change this thing, you can get it to be like 10% faster. And then two years later, I'm still trying to change this one thing, right? Maybe it's intentional, right? Maybe he's out, maybe he's, maybe he's out to get us, right? Maybe that's it. (laughs) So, uh, no, I I love Modprog. Modprog has, Modprog has, um, has, first of all, like the, the, the journey, that he has taken through like the whole rust getting started with this. Like he's learned rust incredibly fast. There are a few people in, in, in our sort of cross community, uh, that I'm really impressed with. And he's one of them who's kind of gone, um, into rust, hasn't spent five decades in rust. No one has, but it hasn't spent as much time as one would think looking at the, the things he produced. I'm very impressed with him. Absolutely. Um, yes. So. Uh, what should we, what should we, t- what should we talk about in the upcoming Rust 1.70 release note? Right. So we, we mentioned this a little bit and we talked about one cell, right? Uh, and one thing that I wanted to say as we were, we were talking about that is the, and I mentioned that maybe this is the end of lazy static, but, but it isn't, of course, because as you mentioned, you can set your MSRV, right? yes. your minimum supported Rust version. And if we are getting rid of lazy static, that means that we have to enforce, um, Rust 1.70. Mm-hmm. For for um, for this thing, and of course, that might not be what what any, what everyone wants, right? So, uh, although I, I don't feel I don't feel like setting your Rust version to be the latest version is really that big of a hurdle. Um, one could say that's because Rust has um, you know frequent releases, and and you know everyone everyone in quotes right stays up to date. I think the real reason is that I never finish anything, so it, no one's ever gonna suffer that. Anyway. <laughs> But 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 that that aside, I, I don't feel like Rust is a language that holds you back when you set the MSRV to a recent version, right? What's your take on that? No, I I mean everything that I'm developing is uh, what I would consider beta. There's only a couple of crates that I've actually named 1.0, um, but. Even the even then, um, I try to make sure that I don't update the MRSRV accidentally. So um, I have like continuous integration actions that you know test against uh, the MSRV. Um, you know, there's also uh, the other edge case of uh, of the minimum crate versions for each um, you know thing that you're supposed to be testing because you may have added a crate at version 1.0 and then they added a feature in 1.3 or something like that, but because of Simver that just automatically got used. Um, so you got the new feature, you started using the new feature, but you didn't notice that that particular feature of that crate only came in 1.3 and you're actually only including 1.0 in your cargo.toml. That means that someone out there who um, does have a forced version dependency of that dependency to 1.0 won't have that feature and your crate won't compile. So there's like a couple of different, you know, breaking changes you got to be worried about with these types of upgrades, um, both with Rust and, you know, your individual crates. My philosophy yes, is to is try true. not to change the MSRV without an actual breaking Simver version change. Um, but I do know there's some crates out there that are a bit more fast and loose with that. Um, but yeah, I it's to me, I don't hesitate to update the MSRV. Um, it's just, do I, you know... Do I do it now or do I wait a little bit is usually the biggest question. So uh, the fact that I'm chomping at the bit to release this other one for 1.70 is just more of a fact that I that's one of the what's it's one of the first releases that I've been truly waiting for the feature to drop for uh, for a specific use case that uh, that I wanted. So I think um, yeah, I know. I, I think the, the uh, I mean, this sounds absolutely right, doesn't it? Um, the the um, um, I'm looking at I'm looking at our, our list 
I'm looking at our list yeah. and I'm seeing. And so, so, so I have I have two bullet points in my list of things to talk about, and both of them are very esoteric and and <laughs> and, and, and nothing. And you have a whole plan there, right? I feel like my my contribution here is more confusion than anything. But one uh, one thing that I wanted to talk to you about, and and I, I think we kind of touched on this a little bit on the last episode, right? And that is. Um, what do you do, right, when you are working on a project? Like I am uh, now, I'm asking you for advice. Let's let's do this. I'm asking for the advice. What should I do? I am stuck working on this this terrible uh, course iterator. Uh, what should I do? Any suggestions? So, on how to move on? I mean. <laughs> Let yourself get distracted by mod prog with another side project. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! No, maybe, I, may, maybe maybe we should at some point bring mod prog onto the podcast, and and he could just unload on the whole world maybe you should just change this maybe you should maybe he can talk about popular crates and say maybe she just and then all these crates will sort of collapse into never, never moving forward again because they're all stuck on this Those are good implementing ideas. some <laughs> some some suggestion from modprog that seems innocent right it's like oh yeah just just do this thing and it will work and i'll be like oh that's a great idea so that's a great idea i can't see anything wrong with that realistically i don't know that there's a good way to get, to give you an answer on this um what i tend to do is uh, like, I mean, the GUI styling problem is is tricky because, like, I'm trying to design uh, something that's like CSS but not CSS that, you know, is compatible with CSS in the browser so that it's easy for me to implement in the browser but is also not too complex so I can implement it in the, the rasterized version, too. And it's, it's hard because there's, like, a lot of different latch-on points. There is the how are the rules for for these styles that are going to get applied going to actually work? How does a widget style itself from the start? Um, you know, how am I going to actually build a reactive system that allows you to update the style sheet or whatever you want to call it, the theme. Um, and then magically the entire app auto rethemes itself. Um, there's a lot of challenging stuff there. And I sometimes just have no idea where to latch on and start working. Um, and that's usually my, the best approach for me is to, to find something that I I can start with, you know, hopefully as small as possible, you know, a smaller chunk of it that I can start putting together. But sometimes I just have to take a step back and pretend that I already have something working that, you know, I'm just now trying to put the lipstick on the pig, try to make the API actually look good and usable, even though I don't actually have the <laughs> API yet. And so I then start thinking about, well, how does the end result look? So for a while in the past week, I actually uh, was hypothesizing what a eventual, uh, you know, GUI language that might be able to be added via proc macros might look like to style widgets. Why? I'm not planning on implementing it anytime soon, as we talked about on a couple episodes ago. I'm not a huge <laughs> fan of those DSLs, but I, at the same time, I know that that's long-term where I want an option to be because I can see the benefits of like what I just described. You're running your application, you edit your style sheet and magically everything restyles without you having to recompile everything. I want that workflow someday for GUI in the short term. I don't want to implement that. I want a pure rust solution that is really easy to use. And yeah, you have to recompile every time you want to change your styles. But, um, but I want to know that I can support that thing in the long term. So, just sitting there and trying to like write, you know, quasi code, you know, that's not actual code, but you know, you're, you're trying to think, well, how would I actually use this thing? Um, sometimes helps me. So I would say like maybe creating some examples of how you might want to use your iterator in those complicated flows. Um, and, and maybe try to make those actual unit tests that you can, you know, try to make work via, you know, uh, some, some sort of test driven development style there. Um, those are kind of my approaches that I, I try. Um, I'm, I'm not a, uh, I don't, always do test-driven development. It all depends on kind of what problems I'm solving. You know, sometimes I go and implement like an entire library and then go write the tests and examples, you know, like it, it really depends on the problem and where my brain feels like it can make sense of the problem and start, you know. I have to say, for the last couple of minutes, I have just been picturing you putting lipstick on a pig, and I'm not entirely sure in this in this imagination, in this fantasy, if the pig wants the lipstick or not, right? But listen, this gives this gives rise to I have a, I, have, I have developed a fantastic business idea while while we've been talking about this. Right? We'll we'll make this we'll make a mobile app, right? I don't know we're gonna name it yet, but it will be like Tinder, but you put your problem on in there instead. So you describe your problem, and then you can just trade problems with each other. <laughs> 
I was thinking like, how, it would, like if, if I could just take your problem and then you can have my problem because other people's problems are always a lot easier. But there is, of course, a caveat that the problem domain can be very large. So then it doesn't really help to, to do this kind of problem swap um, with each other. It doesn't, it doesn't no, work. I mean, that's way. why I was, that's why I was hesitating to even mention the idea of cloning iterators or iterators earlier was like, one, you may have already thought of that situation before, you know, and two, like I, I'm sitting here trying to simplify your problem that I know is way more complex than what you've described on the, on the podcast so far. Well, you validated you know. my ID. So I think that's good. Right? Sure. And I'm, and I, I'm, I'm like, oh, yes, I'm on the right track. <laughs> Other people think the same thing as me. I, my, my idea has been validated. Well, good. I can <laughs> go forward with this thing. Um, no, that's, but that's so, so yeah. So taking a step back is, of course, a very good, uh, approach to doing this thing, right? And um, for, you know what? I think sometimes I am my worst enemy, right? Because I, I, I know this. What you say is true. You know, you you stop thinking about the problem. You let your mind wander. You go for a walk, or or you know, you you read a book, or whatever you do, right? Um, and 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 then the the solution we sort of turn up, right? But uh, for some reason, I am stuck in this frustration where I'm thinking, no, you know what? You don't you don't need this yet. Just solve the blooming problem, right? And move on. But for some reason, I don't allow myself to do this mind wandering that would probably solve the issue, right? Yeah, it's, 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 it's so challenging to figure out how to, how to break apart from that. Cause I do the same thing. I mean, honestly, why did I write an ordered map and release a crate of an ordered map this week? Like that's like, I could have just used a hash map or a B tree map or whatever. And yes, there were certain things that it would be a little less efficient at, but at the same time, my brain couldn't let go of the idea that this was a good idea to develop. And I was a little surprised that when I tried to find and crate search is a, is another problem, like trying to discover good crates out there in the ecosystem can be challenging. I am. I would not be surprised to find out that there's a well-supported, well-maintained library, very similar to what I just released out there. Um, but I did try to search before I implemented this, and there are some features that I'm sure that my crate does that others don't. Like every crate's a little different, right? Um, but at the end of the day, that still was a distraction from me solving the actual problem I was wanting to solve. You know, uh, I don't. I don't know how to avoid it myself because I keep falling prey to it as well. <laughs> You touched on something quite good there, right? You said there might already be a crate out there that solves this problem, right? Um, and 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 so that is, that in and of itself is is could be you know problematic. Well, it might not be problematic, but you know we end up uh, building something that already exists, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and I think this is this is a lot harder for people who are starting out with Rust because at this point you don't know how to evaluate the crate, right? If you if you're not familiar with the language. How are you gonna uh, How are you gonna evaluate uh, a library for mm-hmm. it, right? So, so, um, but I think at the same time, this means that we we have a very thin standard library, so we're paying that cost upfront, right? Uh, did I talk about this in the last episode? Maybe I'm just repeating myself. I don't remember. Um, I was in kind of a sleep deprived uh, mental state last week, so. Um. <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully no one no one remembers. Um, you know what I also did? I did today. I was digging into the slice iterator today, right? Which is written with a macro, and at multiple occasions, every time I see unsafe code, I, I put on my little sleuth hat and I'd be like, "Okay, can I can I catch you up? <laughs> can I find?" Some undefined behavior lurking here, right? And you know when you're kind of poking in the Rust standard library, you're not likely going to find it, right? At this point, I think, especially with something as battle tested as the slice it right. right. But I'm seeing this thing, right? I'm seeing that okay, you got a pointer, right? And and every time every time we call next, we call next unchecked. And what this does, it adds one to the current pointer. It takes the current pointer call it old, adds one to the current pointer, and then return old, mm-hmm. right? And I'm thinking, okay, you know what? If you keep doing this, you're going to end up with the equivalent of indexing into a slice with the index equal to the length of the slice. And of course, with a, with a pointer and, un, and, and unsafe, now we're, we're about to head into some dangerous territory here, right? And the only thing I found was a, a, another macro called is empty. And, and, and for some reason... I didn't really pay that much attention to it the first time I saw it because it's empty, right? If it's not empty, then we're just going to keep iterating, right? But actually what is empty did, which is a little bit strangely named, but what is empty does is actually checking if the pointer is equal to the last 
at the, the end, the tail of the iterator, right? So I, th- I thought I thought I was onto them, but no, <laughs> not 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 even a little bit, right? But it was it's quite fun um, to dig into the standard library sometimes and sort of poke around under the hood and 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 they they have things that we don't use, like you have like a um, you have a way to check if a type is. Uh, zero size type, right? This is uh, ZST, right? That you can check, but we we can't check that, right? We don't we don't we don't have that because that's only in like the standard library. They do get to have more things than we get to have. Don't yeah, they? but I haven't poked around too much inside of there. But yeah, they get to take advantage of all the un- unstable features and stuff, um, uh, which is which is kind of fun. Um, yeah, I uh, I haven't really dug too much into uh, like the Rust uh, slice, for example. Um, but the the that, that's <laughs> I implemented Iterator manually on some stuff this past week uh, for that collection crate that I've I've mentioned. Um, and uh, one of the things that um, kind of I don't know if I'd really put too much thought in it, but it makes a lot of sense. Is that the length? And the is empty um, of a uh, exact size iterator updates as you iterate. Like the, what what starts as a length is not the length when you call it after you've already grabbed a couple items. It's the remaining length. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised if that is empty macro is essentially the same thing that the you know exact size iterator uh, you know is empty function uh, calls through to. Um, which makes a lot of sense when you think about it that way. But I agree that like the idea that, uh, you know, I don't know. It does feel like it should be like, you know, is that end as opposed to is empty, um, you know, slightly better naming conventions. I mean, I think that gets back to uh, like one of the topics that, yeah. we kind of tabled briefly, um, but kind of some of our, you know, you kind of complimenting me on my code, which I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I agree that my code's beautiful. I try, <laughs> but um, but I I think that you know some of these decisions uh, you know are kind of uh, boiled down to kind of personal preferences of how you approach uh, writing code in the first place. Um, so you kind of had a, a bullet point that uh, we were starting to get into, but I didn't actually get into. Um, you know, you you have titled uh, "Personal Rules for Programming." Um, so I'm kind of curious what. What topics you wanted to dig in on that? Yes, so am I. I have no memory of why I wrote that down. <laughs> but there is, of course, there is. This is the this is the problem, right? With 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 the planning, like you have such wonderful planning and outline, and I have my two bullet points, and I don't even know what fifty percent of these mean. Uh, but no, this was this actually leads into the this sort of the procrastination, right? And 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 obviously, I make. I make rules for myself, what I'm allowing myself to do and, and not to do, right? which is what I'm trying to uphold. And I was just wondering if you have any rules when it comes to your programming, right? So, um, well, for instance, you talk about Clippy. Yeah. Right? Clippy is a fantastic tool. If you don't use Clippy, you should definitely use Clippy on, on, on everything that you're going to release into the wild, right? Because this is a, sort of a community agreed on, let's do this with the code sort of thing, right? And it even it even has the possibility to fix certain mm-hmm. lens automatically, right? And I think that's very impressive. Absolutely. Um, so so this thing, yeah, and, and, it, and it's great, right? It's absolutely great. And you can, so you can do this thing, you can run Clippy and, and you get like, you get a lot more warnings and, and suggestions and it will pick up on things. You know. uh, sorry, I was going to say, I, I, w- as much as I compliment Clippy, I want to make sure that um, uh, everyone hears that you shouldn't always do everything Clippy always, you know, says without thinking about it, right? Like, at some point, certain suggestions, you look at your code, you might disagree a little bit with that convention um, for that particular code's readability. Um, and in those cases, I would say that you should just, you know, allow locally that lint to, to not be a warning anymore, um, as opposed to sacrificing what you think is your code legibility for, you know, some, you know, option or result combinator that makes it a little bit harder to, to track the flow of something. Um, that being said, as you get more familiar <laughs> with those things, those suggestions might feel better to start using. Um, there are still a few lints though of, of clippies that I do actually disable here and there. Um, you know, just cause they either don't apply for the situation. Um, like there's some warnings around like, f- uh, f- integer casts and stuff like that, that in certain types of code, I absolutely know that I'm not, you know, that the loss of truncation <laughs> or whatever is not a, uh, is not a big deal. Um, because I'm, I'm expecting it. Um, you know, that sort of thing. Um, you know, the, the other thing that I was, the reason why I brought this up, up was uh, one of the ways that I try to make my code um, 
beautiful, if you want to call it that. I really don't like complimenting my own code that way. Um, but uh, is uh, <laughs> naming things well. Um, I think that naming things is hard uh, or can be hard. And uh, coming up with the right names for function calls and even naming your local variables more than just I and J and X and Y um, goes a really long way in making it easy for someone else to read your code. Um, so I've, I've prioritized um, the idea that names should be long longer and fully descriptive um, as opposed to needing to write extra comments to describe what that variable actually does, for example. Um, so yeah, I think that's one of the biggest philosophies I have is to, to name things as you know descriptively as possible so that when someone goes and reads it, they're more likely to understand exactly what's happening in that code. Yeah, this I agree with as well, right? And, and I am, I am uh, absolutely guilty of not following this rule as well, especially in this sort of prototyping state where I will, I start to get a little bit sloppy and direction becomes dur and, and, and these kind of things, right? I get very, very lazy with these things when I'm prototyping something, but I absolutely agree with you. Um, and, and then when it comes to Clippy, I remember an incident where I myself had had a Clippy lint where I looked at it and I said, no, you're wrong. Right? It's very rarely you can look at your program and say, no, compiler, you're wrong and I'm right. You're most likely not right, and the compiler is right. But in terms of Clippy, right, there was the, I don't even remember the specifics of this thing, but I think it was um, something to do with a mutex lock, right? Did you drop a mutex lock? If you had a map on there, um, now, I don't quite remember the situation. This is an old, and I, and I think they've changed this afterwards, right? but this was an old, old lint. It was probably about maybe even two years ago since, since I ran into this. Um, but when you run into a clipper lint that you don't agree with, do you disable that entire lint or do you change your code specifically at that location where the lint happens? Um, I uh, it, I usually only locally allow the or you know I say it's allowed but allow the code that doesn't match what Clippy wants I guess is the way to say it um, you know I, I I make it not warn about the thing locally which. Uh, Oftentimes can be done on the individual statement, like f even for integer casting um, warning type stuff. You can often have it on that one line. You put the you know allow clippy you know uh, <laughs> trunk loss truncation loss or whatever. I don't remember what the the, the lint name is, but um, yeah, I try to I try to localize them as much as possible because in general I do want to get warned about certain things like that. There are certain times where I do globally disable the lints in the the lib or main.rs. Um, uh, it just really depends on the situation, how often I run into it. If I run into the same thing in multiple locations and I think that it is a style thing as opposed to a potential data issue. So to me, the, the truncating integer values when casting is something I want to be aware of in a lot of times. Most of the time, I should use try from and check for the error to make sure that I didn't actually overflow whatever type I'm converting from. Um, there are some algorithms that you just know that because of bit because of casting or sorry bitwise uh, operations or whatever you just know that there's no data there that you don't care about the extra data that's outside of the range of whatever type you're casting to. Um, so yeah, I uh, but but those are going to be ones that I don't I'll maybe disable on a method by method basis as opposed to on the entire crate because I want to be careful not to accidentally do those in the wrong spot if that makes sense. Yes, it does, right. I, I always feel a, I feel a little bit of a, um, a hesitation every time I have to add code to remove a warning. I feel like I'm sort of there's it's a it's a little bit of a um, you know, in one hand you're sort of turning something off that you want to have and, and, and you're changing your code to silence this thing, right? But on the other hand, you don't want to change your code, um, specifically the thing that the lint complains about. You don't want to change that code. So you, kind of, you have to add code either way. But and I always feel a little bit like, oh, do I, do I have to? Can I magically just have this not annotated and not complain at the same time? Could that, could that work? Um, but of course, it, it, it cannot. No. Uh, there's, one thing, there's one thing that I didn't want to comment on. Um, so I'm going to jump back in our conversation a little bit and talk about when you're looking at source code. I specifically was talking about the standard library, but I'm going to talk about source code in general. And every time I start digging into source code, because I think Rust is very legible. It's a very readable language. Mm -hmm. um, 
But when I start digging into this thing, you know, you click on the little source icon in the documentation, but every time it opens the source to a macro invocation, yeah. my heart sinks yep. a little. I was like, oh, no. And some of those are really hard to, to, to follow. Like, I've, I've poked around on some of those, and I just give up sometimes, um, especially around, like, the integer types. There are macros that define a bunch of stuff that I don't know how they work. They just take, like... 10,000 parameters. That's an over-exaggeration, of course. Um, but, you know, it's like just implement, you know, numeric casts or I don't know what the things were, but like, you know, and then it's like the bunch of parameters and like constants in there for the min and max and all these other things. And it's just like, yeah, I don't know how this works. <laughs> you know, you try to go find the other macro and it's a macro that calls other macros. And like, yeah, um, I, it's one of the reasons why I avoid macros in my code for the most part. Yeah, we, we, we need go to definition in the like Rust source viewer in the Rust docs. That yeah. would be fantastic. And, if you and can, auto expand you uh, macro. auto expand macros in the Rust yeah, exactly, viewer too. <laughs> That would be that would be so good, All right? Um, so should we should we um we we're reaching the end? Yeah. Should we tackle some questions? Uh, yeah, but I also wanted to uh, we we kind of touched on Rust one seventy. There's a few things that I wanted to to mention because I I do kind of want when we have Rust releases to go through real quickly. Um, so I went through the release notes and highlighted a few things. Uh, one of which we already talked about, which was the stabilization, stabilization of once cell, or at least partial stabilization. Um, but for me, uh, all the, all the APIs that I cared about were there. So I'm happy. <laughs> uh, the, another, uh, subtle change that, uh, people may have noticed in a previous release was, uh, there's a sparse protocol for cargo, which allows it to not have to download the entire cargo index. When you go to, build instead it can ask for just the crates uh, that you're needing for the compilation phase you're doing um, and uh, that setting you previously had to go into your car uh, cargo's config.toml and enable it um, and now in rust 170 that's going to be enabled by default so uh, just running uh, you know cargo build and cargo update should uh, in general be faster for most people which is great um, there's a new feature for RC and arc that uh, uh, called into inner that's stabilized um, and it's very similar to try unwrap but the cool thing about this particular API is that let's say you have five different threads with an arc um, and they you want one of them to get the owned value out of it. They can all call into enter and all except for one of those uh, instances will get none back and one of them will succeed. And that's something you can't write with try, uh, try unwrap right now. Um, and, and it's kind of a cool, cool feature. Um, Another little uh, small benefit that won't impact most people, but it's nice for the people that it does, is that format macros uh, can now take uh, macros in the uh, um, position where you would normally put your string literal. Um, so why would more macros? More macros, <laughs> exactly. Uh, why would you want to do this? Well, there's a concat macro that allows you to combine string literals, so you can actually uh, now do some somewhat dynamic programming. Now, obviously, it's still at you know compile time since it's macros, um, but uh, you know, c combining format strings before you call format macro um, in a way that works, which is kind of cool. Um, very small thing that I actually ran into, the non-zero U8, et cetera, non-zero types, um, they have min and max constants, but they weren't stable. Um, it's very minor thing to not have stabilized, but it's kind of nice to have. I can't remember which project I was needing, needing these in, but it'll be nice to go and update that again one of these days. Um, now that's stable. And then the final one that I thought was pretty cool was uh, that I've run into before was uh, a s way in the standard library to detect whether or not um, a particular handle, like a file or uh, you know standard in, standard out, etc., is attached to a terminal slash TTY environment. Um, there is a, a trait called isTerminal in the standard library that is now now stabilized in 170. So those were the those were the highlights that I wanted to call out from from those release notes, um, and I'll link the full release notes as well. But um, yeah, that should drop uh, at some point today. I just tried again; it's still not here. So <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get it soon. I I just I just checked as well. I was like, while you were talking, yeah. I was like, maybe it's been released. Maybe when you're done with the list, I can just say, well, actually. But you know, I cannot. I, I kind of wanted to literally publish this library while the podcast was happening. Happening. So sadly, it's it's not out yet. Um, I, I just got to wait for that it would to have drop, been nice, so. but I do believe that we're we're we're, we're stuck, right? Uh, yes. So so right, you had quite a good list there. I tried to read the release notes in plain text format, but I could not. Quite yeah, GitHub gives up. Uh, it's like it. this this markdown file is too big. <laughs> so. 
But you know what? Did you mention sparse index? And uh, when it was announced, I went in and I changed my cargo tunnel and I didn't look back mm -hmm. and I forgot all about it, right? And then uh, the, a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine um, who who is very is a very good programmer, he decided that he wanted to sort of look a little bit at Rust. And, and, but he's also kind of a natural skeptic, right? And of course, you probably, if you, if you were anywhere on the interwebs when Rust kind of started to become popular, you couldn't, you know, go to a subreddit without someone like, oh, rewrite this in Rust or do whatever <laughs> other thing, right? So, uh, so of course, people got fed up with that, right? So now I'm, I'm very cautious, right? So very cautious. I was thinking, all right, we've got to handle this delicately. He's interested in Rust, but like, how do we, we can't spook him, right? Um, so I, I was sitting there talking him through how to do the whole setup, and, and he did not have sparse index enabled. And I asked him to um, install Cargo Watch, and that took such a long time on his computer just downloading the crate index. And he's like, "What? Why is? The, why does this take so long?" And I'm just thinking, "Do I tell him about the sparse <laughs> index, and like then we're gonna get sidetracked, or do I just sort of go, okay, you only have to do this once, right? Don't, don't do you do this once? Don't worry about it, right?" It's a thing. It's a it's a soul problem in the future. But I felt a little bit like, oh my god, he's gonna see this l massive download of all the crate indices and and and, and like I'm gonna scare him away from Rust. Um, luckily, I don't think he got scared away. Not from that, at least, right? Um, it was quite fun. We did build a. a I sort of just um, walked him through building a virtual machine. Um, we, we talked a lot about that off, off, um, outside of the podcast and such. And then we were building a stack-based virtual machine that did sort of basic arithmetic addition and such. And, and at one point, when I sort of walked him through how we build this thing, and I kind of sort of uh, said very excitedly, and now it, it compiles. Not only does it compile, it is correct because of how we built this thing. And like, you couldn't make this break. Um, and of course, I did forget that we had an unwrap <laughs> at Bob Place and, and we were just incrementing an index going through uh, the program counter and the program counter went outside the program length and the <laughs> application crashed after I excitedly told him that this program is now perfect, right? And it was not perfect, right? And I, and I sort of had to go, well, I mean, obviously in this case, right? But now it's very, it was very, it's very exciting. It's very, it was very fun to see someone uh, kind of take the first steps in, 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 in the Rust journey, right? Because it isn't your average programming language. It isn't that easy to learn compared to certain other programming languages. And it's always, when you see someone do it, you kind of sit there biting your nails a bit, thinking like, oh, I hope you don't run into a borrow checker issue and go, <laughs> hey, what's happening here? What's this all about? Right? Like, keep the illusion going that it's just going to be easy. And maybe, you know, you'll join the ranks of Rustations, right? Um, but there you go. So right? if you tried to put some words in his mouth, uh, what would you say his initial impression of Rust was? Oh, that's, uh, well, he, <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be anger. I'm not going to name him, of course, but but he said, well, this is great. I like Rust, but I have to eat. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to have to go and work with, with something that isn't Rust now. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, but oh this, does, this does um, segue nicely into the viewer question or listener question. I call it viewer questions because uh, I hear so many things. You know, I watch YouTube videos and people say that all the time. Listener question from S Butcher 1969. Um, I think this is off of a GitHub discussion. Discussions. Um, uh, when you were first learning Rust, what was the hardest part for you? What did you struggle with the most, and why? I think I think it was the illusion, right? This comes to mind. It was the illusion. I was just before I went into Rust, I was doing a lot of Python programming. This is actually how I met my friend. Right? We were both uh, hired guns for for this company. Actually, he was he was an employee there, and I was uh, sort of contracting for them, right? And, um, and, and I started writing Rust and, and I've, I've heard so much about this wonderful language and all that. And I, I wrote a program, I very excitedly ran this program and it was slower than my, my Python code. And I thought, well, this is rubbish, right? It was, it was very disappointing and, and a kind of a, a little bit of a, a realization that just because you can write fast programs, doesn't mean that your program will automatically be fast, right? Because <laughs> you can write really bad programs in, in Rust. You can write terrible, slow programs. Your visual basic program will outperform your Rust program if you write bad Rust code and, and good basic code, right? So, so it was a little bit of a wake-up moment. Um, so Rust gives you the tools to write fast code, but you have to learn 
what that actually means, right? Um, so I think maybe maybe it was a little bit of the the realization that oh boy, I got a lot to learn still when it comes to this thing, and that that is a little bit of a hard pill to swallow when you've been a developer for um, without giving my age away. Uh, I learned to program in basic before the internet, right? So I've been programming for decades, and um, and now here's this language that's kind of pointing at me and laughing because I I can't get past the borrow checker and my code is terrible in performance and I'm just I'm, it was it was it was humbling, right? It was a bit humbling. I think maybe maybe that was the biggest struggle for me was the realization that that maybe maybe I'm not that good, <laughs> maybe I'm not as good <laughs> as I thought I was, right? I still have some learning to do, right? So what what about you, right? What was the hardest thing for you? So. I mean, I know that I hit the borrow checker a few times for sure um, and was just confused. But, you know, those are they weren't necessarily that hard. What they were hard to do is try to figure out the right way to tackle a problem because the wrong way often is to, like, do things like wrap things in arcs so you don't have to worry about, you know, actually you can just send around own values instead of references and you don't have to worry about the lifetimes as much right um and you know it all depends on the situation obviously that's a gross simplification of how you how you solve lifetime issues um but that's that's a way for you know an amateur programmer to get rid of some of them is to essentially just you know uh move things into thing uh, into these structures like arc or rc that you can uh clone rather than having to have references um which then localizes when you're actually borrowing from the actual the underlying type um at the end of the day though i i feel like i kind of figured out a, a song and a dance to do to 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 appease the borrow checker gods when i was uh when i was working in rust early um and the part that i struggled with the most was using traits effectively i think um and it's 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 a mixture of um deciphering error messages when um traits are involved in a way that uh just isn't obvious like that that was really challenging and i even had an experience like that this week that uh, the compiler was telling me like this type needs to implement. Um, uh, I think it was, it was saying I need to implement clone, and I'm like, but I'm not. None of my type signatures anywhere are referencing a requirement on clone. Why is this happening? Um, and it kept pointing to implementing borrow for a type, and I'm like, but I'm asking for it to implement borrow, and borrow itself, the the trait for borrow doesn't say anything about clone. I still don't know why clone has anything to do with this problem yet, right? And at the end of the day, it's because borrow is implemented as a uh, like a, a for any type that implements clone um, with itself, essentially, um, and that was the. Uh, rule that the compiler was trying to apply in that location but the error that it generated was just felt completely nonsensical because i was like there's no clones involved why does that happen and i know that i have had had to run into those types of uh trying to decipher you know why aren't these traits quite right or especially when i was trying to implement using traits you know uh in in good ways uh early on um it just took a while to really you know grok them um and then you know the fact that there's differences in how the the dine keyword works with a lot of stuff um you know it, there's just a lot of interesting edge cases there that i felt like probably took me a long time to truly become effective with yeah i think i can kind of relate to a lot of that as well right there's it takes well as you say it took a while to become effective with with what you're building, right? Yeah. Um, but it, it traits, uh, the, you know, we're, we're, we've kind of gone over time a little bit, but I think traits is one of those really fantastic things that you can you can overcomplicate and over-engineer your code base with it, but you can also make your code base very easy to work with, right? You have a little bit of a disconnect with, between traits, right? So you get something that implements a trait, but you're looking for a specific concrete implementation, but you're looking at the call side, right? Um, all right, sorry, you're looking at the function signature. So the function is generic over T, where T uh, implements some trait, but you are looking kind of for a specific implementation of that thing. Right? That's probably the only drawback of traits, right? Is is finding, because there's no way of, of um, I mean, yes, there is, you can sort of find what implements the trait, right? But there's no sort of straight path there when you're taking an impulse trait or, or something like that rather than the concrete type. Right? But the traits are... Traits are, of course, absolutely 
Um, well, one one movie. way you can find the types real quickly, just uh, you said there was no way, but there's technically a very small way, is that when you see it, uh, a trait somewhere and you want to see what types um, implement that trait, um, you in the Rust docs actually do have a list of what types implement that trait. Um, and so that's a good way to discover what you might be able to pass to those types of parameters. That being said, there are a lot of situations where you're absolutely right that it turns out that those are also generic over some implementation uh, 4T or whatever. Um, and you have to go like multiple mm -hmm. levels to try to figure out what's even eligible in that position. So, uh, But sometimes you can actually just go and look in the Rust documentation for that particular type and see a nice little list of these are the types that are supported here. Um, and, and that's nice when that works. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. So, so the takeaway, if you, if you listen to, to this podcast, the takeaway from this is you can read the documentation yes. that I am clearly <laughs> guilty of not always doing. Okay. It is there for the reading. Um, I want to say a last thing about that. If you're getting into Rust, um, one of the, one of the things that I, I think we underestimate a little bit when it comes to learning, it's to understand how to use the standard libraries documentation, right? I think this is like, if you get used to this thing and you know a bit of programming from before, then you know what something is supposed to be able to do. So it becomes kind of easy to scroll through the list of methods on the left-hand side to see what methods are available, including what types you can dereference this type into and have those methods subsequently available. Mm -hmm. right Absolutely. Um, so that's all the time that we have for to today for this thing. I, I am I am tripping up on my own words. Right. You know what? What you you sing us out. You can do it. Sing. I'm not gonna sing. Sorry. Uh, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Bye.